The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo on AM Live. Turning the spotlight on the big issues and the people behind them. It's eight minutes after eight and boy, all the messages coming through for uh, that uh, Ayanda Mabulu interview and uh, many, many of them. And uh, we'll try and storyfy them so you can interact further on our other platforms. But now it's time for the Forum at Eight and uh, continuing on our series that we started earlier this week, uh, talking about the current state of South Africa and South African politics, what is happening and various thought leaders um, expressing their views on various uh, parts and issues uh, that are contained in this context. And uh, yesterday we actually spoke about the politics of disruption with Ralph Mateja. Before that, we spoke to Professor Tiniko Maluleke about the marches and uh, Professor Richard Callan kicked us off uh, talking about how we are at a crossroads. And this morning we're focusing on the politics of violence and coercion and the weakening of an informed uh, discussion. Democratic discourse. And Dr. Somatota Fikeni, of course, is our guest this morning. And you are always welcome to call in 0891-104208 because we always want to hear what's on your mind. 40938 is our SMS line number, charged at 150 per SMS. And you can also tweet or Facebook us at AM Live on SAFM. So uh, just looking at what's been happening. So um, the ANC uh, earlier this month, ANC Stalwarts, they issued a press release hoping to bring members of society up to date with the recent and somewhat disturbing developments uh, in the country. Among the concerns that were raised uh, and that we were warned about was that of a group clad in fatigues similar to those worn by members who served in Umkonto Wesizwe who claimed to be defending Lutuli House against an undefined army. Now the veterans distanced themselves uh, uh, against the group saying that they live in a constitutional democracy and do not need private armies to defend their movement and um, I remember making this comment you know and asking the question what would happen then if uh, we had all sorts of groups and organization deciding that they also wanted to establish um, self-defense or paramilitary groups uh, for their own benefit, where would it leave our country? So we're going to focus on uh, this particular matter now with Professor Somadota Fikeni, who joins us from our Cape Town studios. Professor, thank you so much for your time as always. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm family in Pretoria, just in case people thought <laughs> I I used a broom to fly over to Cape Town. <laughs> okay, that imagery, not good, not going to help us. <laughs> Let's move on to the politics of violence and coercion. And of course, the impact that it naturally has on our democratic discourse. So first and foremost, given what has been playing out, what is your take about what we are seeing in the current context? Well, what we are seeing is the deepening and the revival of the use of a violent rhetoric and coercion, which misplaces any informed engagement on on any particular subject. And uh, the discourse is generally around vaguely coined, broad, uh, you know, uh, slogans. But again, let me underscore the fact that the society has seen an increase of violence generally from family, sex-based violence, violent crimes in different spaces within communities, 
the clashes with the foreign nationals but more importantly the focus here is on the political culture where people very often a small very intense group of people would try to push their position whether electing a leader or debating issues through a threat of violence or coercive means now prof you say that this culture is increasingly becoming the defining feature of our political discourse and that it does of course have the potential of weakening an informed rigorous democratic uh, dispensation talk to us about that assertion oh certainly what you are seeing now is that whenever an issue is raised whether it's a labor dispute or it's a political contestation the use of means which undermine open honest rigorous reflection on any issue means that the people who will prevail sometimes do not always carry an argument or persuasion through logic but rather the fact that they may threaten to impose their position is against the very norms and values of democracy and in the long run as i started by saying uh, chains of habit are too weak to be felt until they are too strong to be broken in the long run it might just become a defining feature of our political culture that's weakening the very democratic discourse and weakening the very constitutional democracy that we have so what are the factors that actually give rise to this sort of culture it's a very complex matter and a range of issues the first one i would say is the fact that people who are aspiring and hoping that the promises of liberation would yield serious fundamental material benefits to them when they see that not happening and they are not given any particular hope that it will happen anytime soon instead they see leaders fighting amongst themselves then they wallow into a valley of despair and they unleash violent means of trying to make their point the second one they realize that whenever they are interacting with public officials with corporate sector for years there is no response until they have a violent response when they have a violent response that's when you start seeing their issues taken seriously as the study by the HSRC said the smoke that calls which in essence is saying once you see a smoke fires roads blocked that's when officials start going back to communicate Mm. with people where there has been a social distance of course there are many other factors uh, the issue of emotional settlement in this country through reconciliation and open uh, disclosure of what happened that process was not completed and lastly though there might be many we should i did a study for my masters on swap of namibia and i realized one thing a liberation movement that had conducted an armed struggle conditions there do not allow for a democratic culture in a combat situation in essence in many ways it reinforces discipline over openness
And now when the liberation movements are seeing their fortunes declining, that reflects that instinct, especially from those who were mainly in the combat space. They often see it as a security threat rather than something that can be resolved democratically through a discourse. So, obviously, some people would say it is unfair to hone in on the African National Congress when looking at this. But um, you did actually uh, disclaim earlier that we are focusing on the political aspect of it more than any other. And when we look at what happened, I think it was the 7th of this month when uh, there were those marches to the union buildings and elsewhere. And you had the... um, well, I can't call them umkontowesis where I don't think, given what has been said by um, the uh, structures there. But there was a group of people dressed in fatigues, uh, similar to those worn by uh, comrades previously in umkontowesis where, and they were out there to guard. Uh, Lutuli House, and it was not the first time. Uh, Previously, when members of the ANC who uh, held a different view also wanted to march on Lutuli House, there was also a group of people who came out and said that they will do the same. And I'm reminded of an incident, I think it was before uh, the Mangaung elective Congress, when there was, um, I think it was in Guiani, and I speak under correction if anybody uh, cares to, I think it was in Guiani where again, there was someone in a crowd where President Jacob Zuma was uh, giving an address, who obviously was not in agreement and he was manhandled in full view of everybody, TV crews and cameras included, by people again dressed in these fatigues who are defending um, the African National Congress. So is it fair to hone in on them in order to highlight what uh, problems this might give rise to? It wouldn't be fair, uh, precisely the point I make in my paper, that this happens in a cross-section of society. You are seeing disputes in churches being settled violently. You are seeing service delivery protests. You are seeing issues in Vuane and elsewhere. It's not just the ANC. It's the culture that is deepening across. But the stakes become even higher When a ruling party, which has been a dominant political force since 1994, leading the society and also being in government, get into that particular space, it simply means it can only amplify these ill tendencies and it can also speed up the, uh, you know, magnification of these challenges Uh, not only in the private sector, in the communities, in the civil society, but also within government, because I do allude to the issue of increasing securocratization of how the state is conducting itself and increasing reliance on the law enforcement in some instances, even with tragic results such as Marikana and some, uh, you know, Andres Tatan and other deaths that we have seen. And of course, um, the question then becomes, what happens if other political parties then decide to form similar groups? Well, uh, then you will have a country which has militias. I mean, uh, if you do not have the law enforcement being relied on, 
you may have a situation you see in places like Somalia when the state fails. You start having either clans grouping themselves. In Libya, you do have clans grouping themselves as militias and so forth. We are far from that, but there is a serious uh, possibility that if a culture of using violence and coercion to make your point becomes embedded over time, it may overpower the state's ability to manage this within constitutionally defined means. Well, we're speaking to uh, Professor Somadota Fikeni this morning, continuing our series on the current state of South African politics. And this morning, we're focusing on the politics of violence and coercion and the weakening of an informed democratic discourse. And uh, as uh, we've done all week, Professor Fikeni has written down his thoughts and it's posted on our webpage, safm.co.za, when you can, uh, you can actually go and read up further on it. But uh, we are also in conversation and taking your views on 0891-104-208 and you can also tweet or Facebook us at AM Live on SAFM. KGM says uh, South Africa has a deep-rooted violent culture dating back to pre-94 and and continues to exist even now post-democracy. Winners and leaders of pre- and post-democratic era got to power violently so, but government used and still uses violence to suppress opposition. So, um, and, and, and Again, how do we move beyond this culture in any meaningful way, Professor Fikeni? Because it, it, it's difficult, especially as uh, you've said, if this has now taken root in all uh, you know, aspects and all facets of our nationhood, how do we root it out? How do we begin to do that? Because it would seem that uh, it actually is intensifying as opposed to you know, dying out. I do think that the first thing is national consciousness about this problem and the potential it may have on our development, on our democracy, and have a difficult, honest conversation about the roots of this, which may lead to the healing process which has never taken place. Both the black majority that feels frustrated in many ways is angry and uh, the white section some sections of our population they are also bottling up anger or fears and without dealing with that particular situation and try to resolve socio-economic issues underlying uh, you know those people are feeling frustrated hopeless and helpless when they see patronage and corruption beginning to weave itself into the very fabric of our private sector, of our public sector, of our community spaces, where they see that chances of success is who are you connected to rather than your capacity. So those frustrations ought to be attended to. But most importantly, we have seen declining democratic discourse within political parties within formations if people begin to understand that whatever goal you are trying to achieve if it is done according to certain democratic values and norms it's not a matter of means just the end justify the means 
then it would actually bring us back to a space we are not beyond recall, but we need to heal first honesty deficit about the nature of our problems. Then we will be able to retrieve ourselves from this potential, uh, you know, dangerous threshold. Well, taking your calls now, 891 in conversation with Professor Somadota Fikeni about the politics of violence and coercion and the weakening of an informed democratic discourse. Um, Jane is in Johannesburg. Good morning, Jane. Hi, Sakina. Yeah, I, I really agree with um, what the prof is saying, but also what KTM was saying as well, because, you know, we can't see this as a new thing. It's, it's been a culture in South Africa for a very long time to conquer problems through violence um, rather than speaking. And I think now the the main, one of the main reasons that we're seeing a proliferation, for want of a better word, of more violence is because up until recently, the ANC was kind of calmly in control and nobody was trying to attest them but now, in recent years, things have gone a bit pear-shaped for them and, and they've kind of had to defend vigorously what they, what they stand for and try and keep control, uh, which is kind of a pity because it, it, it flies in the face of true democracy. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's a new thing. I think we need to figure new ways of, of communicating and, and getting our message across without becoming violent. Thank you so much, Jane. Alex in Pretoria, good morning. Good morning. I must say that uh, I agree with uh, a number of issues raised by Professor Fikene. I think so. we are already in a state where the country has too many militia groups. To the extent that these militia groups have now become an industry. If you look at... Uh, what we are discussing in relation, for example, to what happened at Lituli House. If this march was taking place at a university or it was going to a private company, a private militia group in the form of a private security company would have been invited. So the two should not be seen as if they are different. They are one and the same thing. In fact, the development of the private security industry in our country has grown so much that if you bring together their might, I suspect that uh, the might of the police will, in fact, be far smaller compared to the force of the private industry. This is one of the things we have got to discuss because some private militia groups or paramilitary groups exist in the form of this security com- private security company. But uh, 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 just a point in terms of uh, democratic engagement, that is very, 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 very important. Uh, to give an example with the ANC, in fact, it is a little bit irrelevant, but uh, if you look at the forms of struggle we engaged in, in order to remove apartheid. And the response of the apartheid regime to those forms of struggle, these things had wired violence in our society so that so much that when you are in township, the most respected guy in your street or in your section is the most violent guy who can beat all of you. And these things are building role models even among children. So this 
are very important issues that we've got to discuss in the interest of nation building. Thank you so much, uh, Alex. Uh, Temba and Port Elizabeth, good morning. Thanks, thanks, thanks uh, uh, my lady. Let me be the first one to say my, the views are not the views that have been researched by any means, but are the views uh, through experience of, of my own life. One, I would say political parties' uh, uh, members uh, is, for, is made up of community members. So if you, you would want to lean to the side of saying they are a microcosm of society. Where am I going with this? I'm going to a situation where when there's a lack of education and hunger or rampant poverty in our society, you find a huge number of our young uh, and middle-aged people that are unengaged. They are just loitering around and have nothing to do. That's one part. But then, Professor, please talk to us about the impact and the influence of the era from 60s up to 90s, that political engagement, that mobilization and organized society through a political objective. How different is it to a society that we live in now, that people are not now organized as they used to for a a, a similar purpose? What that means uh, in terms of violence that we see being projected? The third one... Mm -hmm. The third one, I do not think there's any society or community in the country that sits in a corner and think of uh, of conducting violent protest or violent means to do what is this, to vent their ideas. But it's just an issue that comes up sporadically. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Temba in Port Elizabeth. And thank you so much uh, for tuning in. This morning we are speaking to Professor Somatota Fikeni in our series about our South African uh, political landscape at the moment. And this morning we're talking about the politics of violence and coercion. And Dr. Somatota Fikeni writes that there has, over the last decade, been a cumulative growing political culture of coercion and violent political rhetoric that sometimes translates into physical violence and uh, taking your views as well and uh, Prof let's just start by responding to the calls we took before the break and um, again people talking about this culture you also spoke about a culture um, that stems from uh, pre-94 and how we are still dealing with that today well I do think that uh, they are correct in saying that it's not the first time that violence was a dominant feature because Colonial conquest was violent, rise of apartheid, and its uh, suppression of the black majority was violent. The response to it through liberation movements was violent. But the distinction here is that those were often formulated around very clear objectives and ideas, even theorizing about why violence and military struggle had to be undertaken using examples elsewhere. So it was a conscious, concerted effort. But in this case, you do have a constitutional democracy where you do have all kinds of recourses and means to address certain issues. But still, you do have this organization around violence and coercion to make your point which might raise a number of things. Either the system is not working well enough for people to make their point, 
because of the capacity of either the corporate sector or the public sector to respond to their demands. Or the point which I'm making is that people have come to realize that in a society that is not performing well to give economic opportunities of employment or starting businesses, they have started seeing social mobility in terms of rising through political ranks. To do so, therefore, you have to use all means necessary in order to get into being a chairperson of a branch. Sometimes you even try to tell people that the address is the wrong address. You go overnight to give them the list which has your name on top and all those kinds of things to rise to the top. I can't agree more with the person who said this society is militarized even in the private sector. Mm. Indeed, some studies have said that the private security companies do bear arms and intelligence, which is more than that which the state has, which is a scary thought. And even the fact that most of these companies are owned by foreign companies, which means they have means of bearing arms and gathering intelligence, which is even scarier in a sense. But don't stop there. Look at the number of boom gates and gated communities. You're now seeing a country that is punctuated with fortresses all over. And that is usually the function of a society that has grown so unequal that the political and business elite doesn't feel safe enough. They have to protect themselves from the rest of the society but if you had a more egalitarian arrangement or a society of opportunities that people can realistically access, you wouldn't need these walls to protect the elite. And uh, just speaking about, you know, private security and the sort of intelligence and arms that they bear that uh, you say some believe to be even more superior to that held by the state, when you have a police station that needs to be manned and, and protected by private security, what sort of message does that, does that send out to the nation at large? Well, it is a very sad situation which says who will protect the protector because given the kinds of fights that you are seeing at the top of the police and crime fighting units, I think over time that has weakened their capacity for crime intelligence, for even self-defense. Now, even the defense force itself has to be protected because arms were robbed just last week. It raised the whole notion of our capacity of the military, of the police, of the crime intelligence, uh, you know, to do their work. Of course, once you have political deployments in some of these positions and you do have factional politics, which means even that deployment may not be the best of the best, it might be based on loyalties, then it means that the state capacity has been dramatically reduced and as such patronage networks start focusing on marking their political opponents at times rather than doing the protection of the public. So that is the challenge that we are seeing. 
And there was another question that was raised that these are not community-based violence. It's just sporadic. Indeed, I do say somewhere in the paper that these are organized often by small, very intense, well-organized, desperate individuals. It's not the entire community, but it defines the community when the community is not able to stand up and say not in our name. So what is the remedy for ordinary South Africans against this? Because uh, lest we forget that this has uh, the ability to seriously undermine any democracy. If you think back um, to what we had in this country, the Pagats, the Mapojos, then you had in countries like Colombia, remember the uh, drug cartels uh, uh, during the Escobar time and uh, those uh, paramilitary units that were established then. And then also, of course, um, Bosnia, um, under Ratko Mladic, you had those paramilitary units that actually committed genocide. So what is the remedy? Because we can't just be onlookers and watch this happening to us, Prof. Indeed, you are correct. Uh, Perhaps let me start by just amusing you. When you go to different provinces, you'll find that these factions have given each other names. Some are Boko Haram, some are ISIS, some are Taliban, uh, some are Al-Qaeda and so forth. All kinds of global fanatical networks, which means some take pride in terrorizing their opponents. There is no political or historical sensitivity on what this name means. But the issue of violence has become, uh, you know, something you could celebrate. (laughs) Uh, So that's the one thing. What should be happening as a starting point? Democracy is not a bystander sport where you do have 99% sitting uh, on the benches cheering and you only have few players. Civic activism is the most important thing that people should not abdicate their responsibility or outsource it to either political parties or some leaders, often self-selected leaders in many spaces, because those leaders very often do it for themselves, for social mobility to be somewhere on top of something, and they often create an abstract notion of a community they represent. And they muzzle the community. So nothing short of the community taking spaces in their community organizations, in the social movements, in the interest or pressure groups, within the political parties, within their wards and so forth. Because the lack of participation then introduces these individuals who become full-time penetrators and climbers in the political structures. Well, taking your calls now for Professor Somatota Fikeni, 0891104208. Patani in East London, good morning. Good morning, Eskane. Good morning to Professor Fikeni as well. Um, A very important point that you just highlighted, the local social participation, because I once had a similar discussion with with a church leader, if I may refer, and we were talking about uh, this particular topic. And we both highlighted that there is a distance between the masses or the community and the current crop of leaders 
you know. And he was he was highlighting the fact that, as, as the professor as well has mentioned, that we are being led by a revolution movement. So we are conditioned to 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 this act of violence. We think it is right. And having this discussion with with him, I was saying, therefore. Is it not uh, your responsibility as church leaders to rehabilitate or to come up with such programs to, 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 to inform our people now? The times have changed. Can we not look for other means of engagement that are better than violence? And he gave me a very honest answer, I believe. Because he was saying, if you refer to me as a church leader, I have congregants in my church as from Wednesday until Sunday. Now you are creating uh, or you are giving me an opportunity to stand with your people, of which it is your responsible, it is your responsibility to be with your people. Now you're giving me more chance to be with your people. Now by the time we are finished with these such programs, your people will be listening to us. Now you are saying, do we really, really want that? Before I go, I just want again the professor to highlight as to who has failed to implement such programs. Thank you, Esther. Thank you so much, Patani. Nkululego in Standerton, good morning. Hello, Sakina, how are you? Hello, well Prof. And, well and you. <coughs> Thanks. Um, Sakina, Maubane, I read the question about mm, tools. I remember. However, I was partly covered by your question to the professor about is it undermining, oh, sorry, are the policies of violence and intolerance and destruction and, and threat to democracy and what are the remedies? Well, what I've seen, it's very hard to hold your government or the executive to account in South Africa. But you have systems and structures which can um, actually encourage active citizenship. If you can look at the local governance structures, we have what councillors which are directly elected by the community and we have peer councillors. In such a way, we've seen through demonstrations that councillors, especially what councillors, can be held accountable by society um, if they are active and they encourage participation. I was glad yesterday that our SACP raised a similar issue as well, that parliament should actually try to adopt such a situation, um, such a system whereby some people are directly elected and some are proportionally representative. So I think in that way, and since we are seeing a civil society, society um, civil organizations being on the rise now lately, I think we have ways to make sure that parliament and our executive, they do account to society to remedy the threat that we are facing now um, emerging in South Africa. Thanks. Thanks. Nkululego, Hassan and Joburg. Good morning, Hassan. Yeah, I want to go back to the discussion about what we can do. And clearly we have to rebuild the community organizations, the trade unions, the student body, all that we had. And I want to make the argument that, that I've been looking at, uh, that I think there's a contested terrain about violence. Violence did appear during the 80s and the other years, but it was not the main character of it. I mean, the major character of the 1980s in particular was mass organization, the unions, the community organizations, and violence was not the dominant current there. I mean, people used to negotiate. The union democracy that, that, uh, that they were practicing there was characterized by mandates and report backs. I mean, I heard Tutu, I think, in his speech, I think, 2004, I mean, even referred to that period, you know, and I remember him even speaking in the 80s, asking, have you got a mandate? This idea of an unaccountable leadership and those amassing wealth clearly lay at the root of where we are today. So clearly... Not to say that everything here is an inheritance, the violence is an inheritance of the past, because there we had greater social objectives, political objectives, we were united as 
Prof and others pointed out, 10 by, I think, in Eastern Cape. And people were, were, were goal-orientated. We wanted the prize and we wanted to build the democracy as we were trying to change the undemocratic regime. So it's not simply a, a wholesale inheritance of the past. Thank you so much, Hassan Logat. And uh, Matala in Durban, good morning. Is it Motala? Yes, my dear. How are you? Well, and you? Fine. Now, the political leaders invariably listen and do the bidding of the people as long as they are assured that their political power is secure and they will remain in power. But when they see that they may be overthrown by another mass party, that they tend to become dictatorial, as is evident in many other countries today. And those in power for decades tend to become dictatorial, like the NC in power for 22 years. And what happens, they do not, in fact, if anybody opposes them, they would rather imprison them and even beat them up. This is what is the thing that is happening all over the world. And the, the, their fear is they, a different party. Up until now, they had an opposition party of the minority group. But now we have the evidence of the masses rising up against them in a different form. And this is a great threat to them. And that is why they will use any dictatorial method to ensure that this does not happen. And this is the position in South Africa, as is evident all over the world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Motala. Prof? Actually, I do think that uh, the listeners are making very many good points. The first one, indeed, I think time has come for us to revisit our electoral system in our national parliament to see how we have a mixed system rather than the PR system that we have, which is based on party list, so that you do have greater degree of accountability directly to the constituencies where people come from, in addition to the PR system, which ensures that different communities still have their voices in parliament. The second one, the unaccountable leadership comes precisely because of what I've said in the paper, the personalization of power and the weakening of institutions within the rise of patronage networks. When people are no longer becoming leaders of organizations where the values and principles of those organizations are a yardstick to measure the success or failure of leaders, but rather people begin to join leaders and they wait for the leader to pronounce and then they defend the uh, pronouncement or even mispronouncement of the leader. So that in itself is the space when you begin to have unaccountable leadership precisely because you'll have personalized or individualized power. In terms of the liberation movements, the point that was made that over time, liberation movements rely on the narrative of having liberated the people. And they reproduce that through anniversaries, through celebrations, through symbols to remind people. 
But as the generation grows, after 20, 25 years, you find that a majority of young people, you talk of saying, when I was in Robben Island, they'll ask you whether you use the morning or afternoon boat rather than <laughs> the suffering. You say, I was in Zambia. They say, ooh, were you on a safari? Did you go to Vic Falls? So that in itself tells that the narrative start losing traction and they start demanding performance based on the current realities. But liberation movements throughout the world, they don't exit the stage gracefully when they begin to lose power. Like the stars, they rapture. And that rapture tend to be a very painful experience. That is why I do think that it is very important for the society to do comparative analysis across the world and understand some of the trends and tendencies, including the reintroduction of relatively young people as the MK veterans, the people who may even be younger than the time when the armed struggle stopped. We've seen this in Zimbabwe where in 1979 the armed struggle stopped. But you do have war veterans who are 18 years. Either there was a karma, they lived another life before, (laughs) and now they are coming back to use the previous experience, or it's the reproduction. Uh, You know, it's more like a renewable energy that you are using. uh, Never mind Zimbabwe, we're seeing it here. Uh, It's happening. Uh, Chris in Richards Bay, good morning. Good morning, SK. Good morning to the prof. My, my, I've got two points. Uh, the one is that uh, I feel leadership in the country has a role in this. You know, for patronage networks to thrive, all security structures and, 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 and government uh, uh, security agencies will be disempowered on purpose for the patronage network to operate productively for those people that are in power. Number two, you know, the, 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 the paramilitary uh, formation. I saw on Saudi's press conference the other day, he also had a few people that were uh, wearing fatigues you know, of, 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 of some sort. I'm not sure what formation they are. What I'm wanting to say is that it is a problem because if any other person can be able to mobilize and form his own uh, kind of uh, military structure to defend his views, it, it, it will be definitely a problem in the country because everyone will have their own. I saw the cultures as well. They had uh, ELF. Uh, fighting their parents there the other day. And they had the military vehicle parked in their yard. What is that telling you about the country? Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, Leonard in Middleburg, good morning. Yes, how are you? Good and you. Oops. Good. Uh, 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 switch off your radio, please, Leonard. Okay, hold on. Okay, while Leonard does that, Zamani Mabunda asks on Twitter, why is it illegal for other parties to have private armies, but the ANC can keep their cowards, MKMBA? Who are they fighting? Leonard, are you back with us? Yes. Please continue. 
this kind of a behavior is a reminder of how uh, life was before we received uh, democracy. So the current the current leaders they must uh, respect what they fought they fought for. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Leonard. Prof, your response to those two calls? Well, I do think that uh, the issue of uh, other political formations, uh, some have actually had their people with military fatigues. Uh, you'd see APLA when PAC has its own events, and uh, you do see the EFF even the coinage of it being uh, the command and the commander-in-chief and so forth, either that coinage, and you have seen some of the right-wing formations still in khaki-clad uniforms. And uh, the corporate sector, as we said, many people do have their private armies. The mayors and some councillors and some political leaders do organize themselves, and some use the cultural... Uh, you know, groups and the weapons uh, to do the same. So you do have some of these different paramilitary groupings which are around. But the other point I wanted to add is that when government, particularly that which has been securitized, uh, is beginning to lose traction, you'll begin to see the proliferation of conspiracy theories. Intelligence report this, intelligence report that, and then people start saying, I can't speak unless the phone is switched off. Mm. Others start leaving it in another room because you are beginning to see a situation where the intelligence is understood to be marking factions to embarrass them rather than to chase criminals. That's why you would still have ATM bombings in some instances, because that's not a priority. Uh, the energies and the focus would tend to be on marking the uh, factions. Let me read some of the many messages we've received this morning, Prof. Uh, this one says, uh, let's have a national day of reconciliation in all churches throughout our country as soon as possible. And I guess this is uh, trying to move towards uh, uh, resolving what we currently faced with. Vusi in Nelsbrain says, hi, Sakina. Uh, it is sad uh, to see the ANC destroying South Africa on a daily basis while uh, they keep on reminding us not to forget where the country comes from. The ANC fails to understand that progress is what is vital other than the history of yesterday. I completely lost hope from this political cause that they are driving. It's driving us crazy. Uh, Unsigned SMS, the ANC has run out of ideas on how to rule the country because of numerous bad things it has done and is falling apart. Uh, Sajini Ndenze says, what is the use of Umkonto where Siswe in this country under democracy? Uh, this one says, Prof, explain this to me. Why did the ANC leadership encourage membership uh, to, uh, vi- 
to be violent during the 7 April march. Uh, Mizo from Orange Farm says, I agree with the opposition parties uh, I, that the in, uh, opposition parties rather are incorrect when they think that they can march to get Zuma out. Why don't they go and campaign to win in 2019? What do they think will happen after uh, they take Zuma out? Nothing. I for one will not vote for the ANC but I need to be convinced about which party to vote for. That's Mizo in Orange Farm. And Bula says um, they have no force uh, numbers, nor do they appear on the military veterans database. They are Kebi Mapatsu's private militia used uh, f- as voting fodder. The real military veterans are kept at bay uh, with no benefits by Kebi Mapatsu, the renegade with no integrity. And Dimpo says a pity the unemployed youth are being used as shields because they are vulnerable and desperate. So I feel sorry for them, but that is the nature of old liberation movements and being a veteran is cheaper and everyone can be recruited to do the defense of those in the hot seat. Your final thought, Prof? Well, to me, I would simply paraphrase Martin Luther King Jr. when he said, we must reach a point of consciousness as a society where we are sick and tired of being sick and tired and start doing something knowing that each one of us We are the leaders we've been waiting for. The challenge in a society is that you're waiting for a church leader, a political leader, a person down the street to lead you, when in fact it might as well be that as an active citizen with a sense of agency, you may redirect the society in the right path and the promises of our democracy would be realized. Well, thank you so much, uh, Pro- uh, Professor Somatotafi Kenny, and thanks to you, the response has been absolutely overwhelming, and uh, not in our wildest uh, dreams did we think that uh, you would take so well to these discussions. And uh, we have heard you, and uh, women, the lack of women, female voices, and black women in particular, we're working on it, and hopefully, hopefully, we'll have no less than three of them next week. Uh, but of course, it doesn't mean that we will not be uh, focusing on breaking stories and big stories of the day but thank you so much everybody and also enjoy your weekend it's nine o'clock time for the latest news with Nomsan Luli